Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. Great to have you, uh, those of you who are joining us on Facebook Live. A few winters ago, my snow shovel went missing. Literally, I, I just shoveled out the end of my driveway. I'd gotten uh, the end of it, and I just took my snow shovel, and I stuck it in, like, the, you know, the snow bank that was right there by the side of my driveway. And when I came back out the next time, it was gone. And so I came to a conclusion. And the conclusion I came to was somebody in my neighborhood must have stolen my snow shovel. And so I went to the store and I bought a new snow shovel the whole time complaining to my wife about those thieves in my neighborhood who had stolen my snow shovel. And uh, I literally, I would stand there morning after morning at the front window that looked out over the snowy neighborhood of, of our house where we lived at that time with my coffee cup in hand, like the Grinch looking out over Whoville with judgment in my heart, just sitting there wondering which one of my neighbors had done it. Like, seriously, who just walks by and steals somebody's snow shovel or your neighbor right out of their yard? So the winter months rolled on, and we got to the point where spring was here and the snow was melting, and I kid you not, one morning I'm standing with my coffee cup looking out the front window at our neighborhood, and what's that sticking out of the snow in our front yard? I get my shoes on, I go out, and as I get closer, it looks like the handle of my snow shovel. So I pull this thing out of the snow, and there it was. There was my snow shovel. It was there the whole time. Apparently, like, maybe the wind blew it down, and then either a snowstorm or maybe the plow, when it went by, just buried it underneath all this snow. So my snow shovel was literally right there in my front yard, a few feet away from me the entire winter, I, and I, I didn't even go looking for it. It didn't even occur to me that I should go actually looking for it. And the reason for that is because I made an assumption. And the assumption I made was that somebody in my neighborhood must have stolen my snow shovel. Have, have you ever done that? I mean, not that specifically. That was stupid. But have you ever made a faulty assumption and then you, it led you down this path that was completely wrong because you started with the wrong assumption? The reason I share that with you is because in the story we're going to look at this morning in Scripture, that's exactly what God's people do. Um, God's people were waiting for a Messiah. Israel was waiting for a Messiah that would come. It had been promised all through the Old Testament and the Scriptures. But they were starting with a faulty assumption of what they believed the Messiah was going to be and who he was going to be. And so they weren't even looking for Jesus when he appeared. If you're just joining us, uh, you may not be aware, we're on week number two of a series called Waiting for When. We're looking at the Christmas story and we're talking about what does it mean to wait? What does it mean to wait well? And what, what are we supposed to be doing when we're waiting? Um, and if you're uh, just joining us or maybe haven't uh, been aware, I think most of you are aware, we're on day 35 today of 40 days of prayer and fasting. In fact, this is the last time we're going to gather on a Sunday before the end of that time of prayer and fasting. And so what we've been doing is we've been bringing before God some needs in our church and some needs in our lives individually. And part of praying and fasting and seeking God is waiting, waiting for him to provide, waiting for him to reveal himself, waiting for him to speak and, and give us direction uh, on how he wants us to, to move forward. And so that's where we're going today. And so last week, if you were with us, we began with a story of a guy named Zecharias and Elizabeth and they're waiting for a baby. And so we talked about them and their story. Today, I want to talk about the question, what was Israel waiting for in terms of the Messiah? What was Israel waiting for in terms of the Messiah? Because they had some false assumptions of who the Messiah was going to be that did not lead them to be expecting Jesus when Jesus arrived on the scene. 
And really, you can't blame them. It's not totally their fault. If you look at the story of the history of Israel, Israel suffered greatly. Um, for years and years and years, they were invaded by foreign powers who sought to control the land of Israel. It was kind of a strategic uh, piece of land in the ancient world because it connected Africa and Europe and Asia. And so foreign powers saw it as a great piece of, you know, prime real estate to occupy. But then, you know, they suffered in slavery in Egypt. They suffered and endured exile in Babylon. And so when you get to like the first century, when the time when Jesus was going to be born, for Israel, they were waiting. They understood the scriptures to be promising that a, a Messiah, and the word means king, a Messiah king would be coming in the line of King David. And so they were expecting a great military Messiah. That's what they were expecting. They were expecting this guy who would raise up a, an army. He was going to be a person of power, a person of means. And he was going to be able to raise up a military army and make Israel great again. And he was going to lead them back to being this military superpower in the world once more. That's what they were expecting. That's what they wanted. And so um, last week, if you were with us, Luke's gospel is where we're um, staying for this entire uh, series. In Luke's gospel, the story begins with an angel named Gabriel appearing to this guy named Zacharias and promising a pregnancy. And so the little stick had not even turned blue yet, but this angel is per, you know, pronouncing this pregnancy. And it comes to pass, and we know him as John the Baptist, that baby that was born to them. And so the angel Gabriel is added again in our story today. This time he appears to a virgin in Nazareth named Mary, and the baby that he announces uh, is going to be named Jesus. And next week, we're actually going to look more closely at that story specifically. We're a little bit closer to Christmas, and so we're going to look at the birth of Jesus next week. But today, for our purposes, we think about what was Israel waiting for. I want to look at what happens right after Jesus was born. So this is the story that happens and takes place in Luke's gospel right after Jesus' birth. So we're in Luke 2, starting in verse 21, and it says this. Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. Then it was time for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons." Now, that's a whole lot of information, and honestly, oftentimes when we read this part of the Christmas story, we just sort of gloss over it because it has a bunch of stuff from the past that we don't really get. So if I could, there's some really important things being said here. I want to take you, if I could, into some of the context of what's being said here. In what we know of as the Old Testament, in the Law of Moses, there is a passage, and Leviticus 12 is actually where you find it. And what God's people were instructed to do in Leviticus 12, in the Law of the Lord, was that when a woman would have a male child, she was expected to go through a purification period for 40 days. You see that period of time, 40 days, appear again and again. We've been fasting and praying for 40 days. Jesus fasted and prayed for 40 days. There was 40 days after a woman had a male child that she was required to purify herself. At the end of that purification time, if this was their firstborn male child, what, they, what the family was required to do in Israel at this time is they were required by the law of the Lord to take a trip to Jerusalem, to the temple, and they were to offer a sacrifice to redeem or to buy back their first 
born male child. The reason for this is because in the law of the Lord, uh, it says that all the firstborn males born in Israel are mine, declares the Lord. So the firstborn males of animals, of flocks, of herds, and the firstborn males of humans, they all are dedicated. They're all automatically, they belong to the Lord. That's what it says. And so if you had a firstborn male child, you would go to the temple, you would offer these sacrifices in order to redeem or to buy back your firstborn male child. Now, what it actually says in Leviticus 12, you can go read it if you want. What it actually says is that there are two sacrifices you're supposed to make. One is a burnt offering, one is a sin offering. The burnt offering was supposed to be a lamb. The sin offering was supposed to be a turtle dove. Now, these offerings are extremely significant because both of those offerings pointed toward what Jesus actually did. The lamb actually pointed toward the cross and Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus was God's firstborn son, and Jesus came as the sacrificial lamb that was offered on our behalf so that we could be redeemed. So all this time, every firstborn child, they're going to the temple, they're offering these sacrifices, and those sacrifices point right toward Jesus and what he came to do. The turtle dove, the second, the sin offering, represented the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, which happens in Acts chapter 2 as the church comes together and, and begins to be formed. So these sacrifices were really significant. And what it says in Leviticus 12 is, if a family is too poor to offer the sacrifice of a lamb and a turtle dove, then there is a permittance in the law. It says, if a family's too poor, they can bring two turtle doves. And a partridge in a pear tree. I'm sorry. I promised myself I wasn't going to do that second service, and then I just, I can't help myself. It just triggers me when I get to that part. So, so two turtle doves are offered, one for the burnt offering, one for the sacrifice, or one for the sin offering, if a family is too poor to be able to afford the lamb, which was more expensive in that time, and the turtle dove. So what does this text tell us? Mary and Joseph, their pur- the purification time is over. Jesus was their first, firstborn son. They're going to the temple to offer these sacrifices that Jesus himself came to fulfill. And what do they offer? They offer two turtle doves. Well, what is Luke trying to tell us about Mary and Joseph? They're poor. That's right. They're poor. They're, they're on the government-assisted sacrifice program. That's what it's telling us. In fact, the Gospels also tell us that Joseph was a carpenter. And a carpenter in that time in the first century in Israel was basically a day laborer. So a person who had work for that day and then they didn't really necessarily have a promise that there would be work for tomorrow. They would have to kind of go to wherever the work was. It wasn't like how a carpenter, you know, functions in our society. So this was one of the poorest occupations you could have at this time. Joseph and Mary are poor. That's what the text is telling us. That's what Luke wants us to understand. The story goes on. It says, at that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. So there's this guy named Simeon who who happens to go to the temple. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Spirit to go to the temple that day because he believes he is going to see the Messiah. 
And what Luke wants us to know is that Simeon understands the Messiah the same way that all the people of Israel at that time understood the Messiah. He was here, if you caught it in the text, he was here to be a rescue for Israel. He understood, just like the people of Israel understood this time, the Messiah, when he comes, he is a rescue for us. He's a rescue for our people. He's going to make us great again. He's going to be this powerful military king who's going to raise up an army and make us into a superpower again. That's what he was expecting. And what he encounters is a baby born into a poor family. Hardly a rescue. He's not powerful. He doesn't have resources and privilege. He's not even the right pedigree. And that's what Simeon encounters. And because he's filled with the Holy Spirit and because he recognizes this is the Messiah that he had been waiting for. In fact, God had told him you weren't going to die. He wasn't going to die until he saw the Messiah. This is what he proclaims. He took the child, Jesus, in his arms and he praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for who? all people. He is a light to reveal God to who? The nations, plural. Really? Oh, yeah. And also, he's also the glory of your people, Israel. What, 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 did, what happened to Simeon in this moment when he actually holds Jesus, this baby born into a poor family? These false assumptions that Israel had and, the, and that even Simeon had in that moment suddenly dissipate and he understands. He's the first person to really understand who Jesus is and why he's here. He's here for all people. He's here to be a salvation for all people. He's here to be a light to the nations, the same nations who have mistreated us and abused us and invaded us over all these years. That's what he's here for. You have to, you have to understand this. A suffering Messiah who would identify himself with the poor, who would literally choose to come as a, as a baby born into a poor family, and who would be a light to all the nations was not what Israel had ordered off the menu for a Messiah. It's not what they were looking for. If you're, if you're taking notes, maybe just a simple way to say it. Israel wanted a Messiah that would slay their enemies, not one that would lay down his life for them. They were looking for this powerful king. And instead, Jesus appears as a light to the nations, a baby born into a poor family. Here's where I'm going with this. Maybe you've been fasting and praying. Maybe you've joined us in this 40 days. Maybe you've, uh, you've got some things right now in your life that you're bringing before God, some direction that you need. Maybe you're asking for him to provide in a specific way. Could it be that God is answering your prayers? Could it be that he actually is answering your prayers? It's just that it's not in the package that you were expecting. Could it be that maybe you've, start, you've had some false assumptions about what God wanted to do in your life and the way he wants to lead you and the things he wants to provide for you? Could it be that he actually is answering your prayers? He is revealing himself to you. He is providing for you. It's just not what you ordered off the menu. I don't want to forgive my enemies, God. I want you to slay them, right? That's why I'm fasting and praying. So you'll do something about them. 
God, I, I, I want to serve, I don't want to serve you over here in this corner where nobody sees me. I want to serve you in this glamorous way. That's what, I, that's what I'm ordering. That's what I'm asking for. Could it be that God actually is drawing close to you? Could it be that he actually is entering into your life and answering your prayers? It's just, it's not exactly the way you were expecting or the way that you were hoping for. Well, you see, if you continue to read the gospel of Luke, if you go here from the Christmas story and you just continue to go, Luke's gospel just shows Jesus again and again and again defying the expectations his own people had of the Messiah and identifying with the poor again and again and again. I'll give you a couple of examples of this quickly. In Luke chapter four, the first thing Jesus does when he comes out of that 40-day period of time in the wilderness He's faced these three temptations. He's fasted and prayed for 40 days. The very first thing he does after coming out of that wilderness time in Luke's gospel is he goes to his hometown of Nazareth and he goes into the synagogue, his home church essentially, and he preaches his first ever sermon in Luke's gospel. It's the first time Jesus ever publicly says anything or preaches anything. And so what he does is he sits down in the, in the teaching seat in the synagogue and he asks for the scroll of Isaiah to be brought to him. And he opens up the scroll of Isaiah to what we know in our Bible as Isaiah chapter 61. And he says, this chapter, what Isaiah was saying here in Isaiah 61 was about me. It was applying to me. And he reads that passage and he says, if you want to know me, if you want to understand why I'm here, he says, I have come to preach good news to the poor. And they run him out of the synagogue. They reject him in his own hometown. And this just keeps happening again and again. Luke 18 is another passage. A rich man approaches Jesus. And it's a guy with means. It's a guy with wealth. It's a guy who could bring some really great things to the movement uh, that is going now of people following Jesus. And this rich man comes to Jesus and he says, I want to know what it, what it means to have eternal life and to follow you. And, G and Jesus says to him, okay, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go sell all of your possessions and give it all to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. And then you'll be ready to come follow me. It says the guy goes away sad because he had great wealth. And he couldn't separate himself from his wealth. It had become an idol, the thing that was security for him, the, th the place where he put all his hope and his trust. It, it wasn't what he expected. He had, he had some false assumptions of what he was hoping for. Here's a guy who has means. He's coming to Jesus. He's expecting, oh, oh that's great. We finally got somebody who can make some things happen. Somebody who can write a check. This is great for the movement. It's really going to help us. And Jesus is like, yeah, if you really want to follow me, honestly, if this, that's what you want, go Go sell it. Give it all to the, to the poor, really. Just throw it away. To the, just give it to the poor. And then you're ready to follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. This is not the answer the guy was looking for. And Jesus just continues to do this. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus so identifies himself with the poor that in the last week of his life, he actually says to his disciples, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, the, the, the poor, the blind, the naked, the sick, the homeless, those who are hungry. He said, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you actually did it to me. Whatever you did not do for them, you actually did not do it for me. Understand what, what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, hey, if you uh, do some nice things for some poor people, you'll get some brownie points with me. That's not what he's saying. He's actually saying whatever you did for them or whatever you did not do for one of the least of these in this world, you did it for me. 
he identifies himself with the poor. He says, I'm found in the forgotten. Just like he did when he came as a baby, born into the poorest of families. He identified with the poor. What's interesting is if you continue to read all the way through Luke's gospel, uh, the early church, after the resurrection of Jesus, as the early church began to form, they took this so seriously. They took it so seriously that Jesus identified himself so much with the poor and with the forgotten in our world um, that in fact, Luke, the same Luke who wrote Luke's gospel actually wrote the book of Acts, which is all about the early church. And Luke's, uh, Luke says this in the book of Acts, Acts chapter four, he says, all the believers were united in heart and mind and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them. Because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles and give to those in need. And what, what Luke's saying here, what he's describing is actually, we, we sort of ripped off that verse and we used it as part of our vision. So if, if you're not familiar, uh, Frontline's vision is stated in the word zero. We believe we're not done as a church until there are zero uh, people living unchanged for Jesus in our community. And so there are these five zeros that make up our vision as a church. And, and one of them is the idea of zero needy people among them. That there would be zero needs among them. That's, that's the, the language we've used. We ripped that language off from Luke. And what Luke's saying here is that in the, after the resurrection of Jesus, the apostles were testifying to Jesus so much and people were centering themselves around the person of Christ and they were living this way, intentionally following Jesus in such a powerful way that one day they look around and there's no needy people among them. And I don't feel so bad about stealing Luke's language there for our vision because it turns out Luke actually stole that language himself. He stole it from the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 15. So we're going to look at that. This is where Luke stole the language of no needy people among them. Deuteronomy 15.4 says, There should be no poor among you, for the, law, for the Lord your God will greatly bless you in the land he is giving you as a special possession. Now Moses said those words to the people of Israel in the Old Testament right before they entered the promised land. He said, what's going to happen is you're going to go into such a land where you're going to be blessed so much, there is absolutely no reason why everyone shouldn't have their needs met. There's going to be no poor among you when you go into this land of Israel. You know what Luke's trying to say? When Luke quotes this language in Luke 4, what he's saying is what was supposed to happen in Israel, when Israel went into the land and they were so incredibly blessed, there were supposed to be no needy people among them and that never happened. It never happened because people's hearts weren't changed. He says, well, that finally actually did happen in the church when people were centered around the person of Jesus. That's when this thing actually finally got fulfilled and became true. It never happened in Israel. It finally happened in the early church, centered around the person of Jesus. That's when it finally took place. So how does that apply to us? What does that mean for us? I would say this. Oftentimes we talk about what does it mean as a church to be Christ-centered? What does it mean for a church, a body of people, to be centered around the person of Jesus? And by the way, that's what we want to be. A church is not centered around a bunch of goals or a personality or, or any of that. The church is centered around the person of Jesus Christ. Oftentimes when we talk about what does it mean to be 
Christ-centered as a church, what, what oftentimes what people will talk about is like, you know, what the sermons are about or what theology is being preached or, you know, what denomination you're a part of or what political affiliation that you most align yourself with. Not according to Jesus. Not according to Jesus. And according to Jesus, if you want to know whether a church is Christ-centered, centered around him or not, you have to look at what they're doing with the poor. Because he came as a baby born into a poor family. He said, whatever you do for the least of these, you've done it for me. Because I have come to preach good news to the poor. This past October, uh, I got to go on a trip with my uh, youngest son, John. (laughs) There we are. We went to Ethiopia together. in the Hawassa area, we have a care point here as a church called Ukro. And so at our Ukro care point, um, John and I went with a team of people here from Frontline, and we traveled to Ethiopia, and we got to see the care point. We got to see it in action and um, what's happening there. And so we went around, and we got to visit families of the children that you sponsor. And we have about 150 kids at the care point, about 125, 130, I think somewhere around there are sponsored right now. So we need more kids to get sponsored in this area, but we got to see the impact that child sponsorship is having. Um, The picture you're looking at right now is actually, these are uh, with our team, these are some of the families that have been impacted by the IGA program that's happening through the CarePoint. IGA stands for Income Generating Activity. Some of you are familiar with microfinance and uh, how the the whole idea of microloans is transforming the developing world. Essentially, um, you've given, and there's like a kind of like a pot of money. And so these small business loans and some training are given out to some of these families and they're able to actually take this money and build a small business. And then they're able to pay, when they're self-sustaining, they're able to pay that money back. And so the pot just continues to grow and grow until um, there's more and more and more people helped. In fact, out here in the lobby, these cards, the Christmas cards that are being sold for Ucro, um, those were made by the kids in our care point. I was actually there the day watching the kids make these Christmas cards. And when you buy those Christmas cards, the money is going to support more and more families in the care point being able to take on these small business loans. And I'm here to tell you it is changing people's lives. We saw it firsthand. These families go from like just day to day. I'm not sure if we're going to have enough food to eat today to like there's a plan and there's a hope and there's a future and we're starting to dream about where our lives are headed. It's absolutely amazing what just a little bit of money will do to transform the lives of these folks. We went and saw uh, the water point, the water kiosk. Um, Some of you remember a couple Christmases ago, it wasn't cards we were selling, we were doing something else and we were trying to raise money to build a water kiosk that would bring clean water into the area of the care point there in Ucro. Clean water is a big issue there in this part of Africa. And so uh, we went and we actually visited. You built this. Here it is. And um, it's this water point where people can get fresh water. And uh, here you see this kind of lady in there. There's actually inside this build, this little tiny water point building um, is one of the IGAs, one of the small businesses. This family has like a little store. So when people come to get water, there's a store there. Um, We we did that. We went all around. We, We went to some Orthodox churches. Um, just saw how people lived out their faith in Jesus and experienced that. But my favorite memories from the trip are the moments that we spent with the people that have forever shaped and transformed my family's life personally. 
That's global, something that we're doing globally in our world. Uh, some of you know on this side of the building, there's something called the Storehouse. It's a nonprofit organization um, taking up for, you know, a little less than 50,000 square feet, something like that on this side of the building. And for us, that's been an extension of a vision that, that we feel like God gave us a long time ago. And um, Jessica Johns, who's the executive director of the Storehouse, you met her a, a few weeks ago. Uh, she sent me something this past week, just some numbers. And in fact, I'm not really sure if this is a like since the storehouse opened or if it's just this past year because it's really been growing. But um, 67,176 adults' lives have been impacted through the nonprofit partnerships when the shipments come into the storehouse and the way they're being dispersed. 74,710 kids have been impacted. And so what's happening is this side of our building has become a place, yeah. Yeah, for sure. What's happening is this side of our building is becoming a place of hope in our community for nonprofits that are trying to make a difference and, and give a hand up to people and help them take a step forward in life. And this is becoming a place where they can go and where resources can be shared, and it's impacting lives. In the storehouse, there is a store known as the Essential Store. And the Essential Store is actually the part of uh, the storehouse that we as a church uh, own. And so um, Jen Knapp and Jesse Heine, our, our missional pastor, kind of helped oversee that. And a bunch of you volunteer and serve at the Essential Store. And uh, I've been told it's over 300 people now a month through a membership are coming and are able to get personal care items and, and that are able to help them take a step forward in life when they're really in, in a desperate place, in a hard place. And what's interesting is there's people from our church, that people that have started coming to our church through that essential store. So people use it from the community, and there are also people in our church using it. In fact, here's an email from a single mom who actually attends our church. She says this, I want to share how blessed we have been to belong to the essential store. Yesterday I went, and so many needs I was not even thinking about were filled. My son, she says, needed a heater for his room. He got one. His dog chewed up his dog bed. He got one, which I didn't even know we had dog beds back there, whatever. Our smoke detector quit working. We got two new ones. We live in financial insecurity, and to see how God works is amazing. My life and the kids' lives have been changed and blessed by Frontline so much. My prayer is I can continue to serve in a small way to repay. Thanks for being his hands and feet. Again, just to be clear, this is someone who actively attends here and serves they're in a volunteer serving role, this mom. Every week she serves here at our church. And more things like that are happening. Recently, there was a single mom who had lost housing, and so she had lost custody of her kids. And some people in our church helped her with that, helped her get back into housing, and so she's getting her kids back. Um, there's, a, there's a guy in our church who's lost the use of his leg um, because of some health issues. And so some families from our church went and built him a, a wheelchair ramp at his house and helped him move his office from down, upstairs to downstairs and helped reshape it. Um, last week, Jim Elserman, our congregational care pastor, was telling me, I sent, I sent an email to Jim about a family in our church. I, they're just going through a really tough time right now and have a lot of needs. And I just said, Jim, is there anything we can do for this family right now. And he told me, my email came in, hey, can you help this family? He said, literally, the next email that came into his inbox was from a small group leader here at Frontline. And this small group leader said, hey, our small group was talking last night, and we were talking about, hey, is there a family we could just adopt as a small group here in the church and just bless them and help them? He said, literally, my email, and then that email comes through. Yeah, I think I, think I might know somebody. 
Stuff like this is happening all the time around here. We don't share about it all the time. So why am I just blasting you with all these stories today? Here's why. Here's why I want you to hear this today. You know, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we have some big needs as a church right now. The roof, the sound system. Uh, there's some pressing needs for us as a church. So the question becomes, why? As you're walking in here and you're hearing that, why, and you're walking by cards being sold, Christmas cards for Ucro that benefit these IGAs, why are we selling cards right now? Why, as Blake just referenced, um, are we going to do next week uh, and then the following week, there are going to be envelopes on your chairs when you walk in that are going to say, giving ourselves away on them. And at the end of December, every year, we, we ask you to give sacrificially and generously to giving ourselves away. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's how we give ourselves away. All those things I was just sharing with you, giving ourselves away funds those things. So they become, why are you asking us to give to those things? Why are you asking us to do that? Why are we selling cards? Why are we, you know, hosting the storehouse for free? Why are we doing that kind of stuff when we've got these needs? The answer is because Jesus came as a baby born into a poor family who identified with the poor and said, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done for me because I have come to preach good news to the poor. Can we trust God to live the way he's called us to? Can we trust him to be focused on the things he's focused on and trust him with our own needs and trust him with the rest? Can we do that? It's maybe not intuitive. Maybe it's counterintuitive. What does that mean for us as a church? Or for you personally, the band's going to come back out and we're going to sing, but I'd love for us just to maybe ponder this question. Are your expectations centered on who Jesus actually is? Could it be that God actually is answering your prayers? That he actually is directing you? It's just maybe you're not expecting the answers he's trying to give. Are, are your expectations centered on who Jesus actually is and who he's represented himself to be? You understand his people missed it, right? His own people missed it. They kicked him out of his hometown church. They didn't get it. Are, are we asking Jesus to reveal himself to us and lead us? One last thing I'll say before we pray here. Um, oftentimes I think when messages like this get shared, what happens is uh, we hear these messages and we immediately think, oh man, I need to get on a plane and go to Africa right now. And maybe some of you do, I don't know. Probably not though. Or, or you think, oh, I gotta go right from here. I gotta go downtown and find the first homeless person I can find and you know, do, do something for them. And, and really not, I don't think that's actually uh, what God would have us do. I think what we need to do is just open our eyes and look around us. Because here's the truth. Every one of us in this room knows spiritually poor and broken people. Every one of us knows people that are poor. Some of, some of those people are wealthy. They have their needs met immediately. But they are the poorest people on earth because they don't have that hope of knowing Jesus. They don't have that hope of knowing him and be found in him. Other people you know, maybe they know Jesus, but they are really struggling. They are poor. What does it mean to just open your eyes? And maybe it is that God is already leading you. 
you just haven't identified it as such? Are, are your expectations that you have for God and what he wants to do in your life lined up with who the person of Jesus actually is? So if we could, I'd love to just uh, bow our heads for a moment. And let's just spend some time with the Holy Spirit, just letting him reflect that a little bit in us. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that you're a God who gives us what we need and not just what we want. God, thank you for sometimes the way you answer the prayers that we ask for and you don't give us what we actually are asking for, but you give us something much better. Your word says that you are able to do immeasurably more than anything we could ever ask or imagine. And so this morning, God, we want to center ourselves on who you are. God, would you reveal to us places in our lives where we need to just surrender ourselves to you and say, God, your will be done. You reveal yourself however you want to reveal yourself. I'm not going to try to control the outcome. I'm not going to get angry and bitter if you don't do what I was expecting you to do, the when I was expecting you to do it. And God, this morning we say that we're going to we're going to be people who see ourselves as your hands and your feet, who be the kind of people that you've called us to be, to be, to be able to spread good news to the poor. And we'll trust you with the rest, God. As a people, we will trust you with all the rest, believing that as we do that, you've got a plan for us, you've got a plan for your church, and you're the one who holds it all together, not us. So God, to that end, would you speak to us? Would you be with us? And uh, we just want to be a church and a, and a people that are centered around the name of Jesus. As we were just singing about earlier, what a beautiful name it is. So God, would you just allow us to rest in that love and that trust that you've paid the price. It's by no merit of our own. It's by no worthiness that we've been able to manufacture on our own part that our hope comes in what you did sacrificial lamb that paid the price for our sins, who laid down your life. Thank you, God, for not giving uh, us what maybe we thought we wanted, but what we desperately needed. And we were found in that this morning. It's in Jesus' name, everyone says, amen.